your name? Alex. No. What's your real name, love? I reckon you're a copper or something. Do you now? So what is it? Sandy. You're too good for this, Sandy. Pretty little thing like you laying in the gutter. I'll get out while you can, girl. You're better than this. I don't think I am. Of course you are. Just look in the mirror. What if I don't want to? Then maybe it's too late for you. Welcome back to a brand new year and a brand new era here at your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here a minute ago, but he needed to go get his can of Coke out of the fridge before starting Coca-Cola. The only soft drink favored by the fear of God. I'm sure he'll be back, but in the meantime, allow me to welcome you listeners back into this first series of the year. That of 2021 more time, running down five films from your top 10 horror of 2021. On top of that, and for patrons only right now, we're hanging in the crock pot with a TV guidepost featuring Mike Flanagan's Netflix series, Midnight Mass. Last week. We got to know our known unknowns with Werewolves Within, and joining us today to get our fashion on is horror, Enneagrammarian, Asia, Schwarzentruber, Asia, welcome back to the show, and Happy New Year, friend. Oh my goodness, it's always fun to be here. Well, fun to have you here. So listen, as a reminder to you, and as a reminder to our listeners this new year, here at The Fear of God, we explore, we don't explain. Except for right now when I explain that you can find every fog and fear of God thing imaginable at thefearofgodpodcast.com. How to support us on Patreon for one. Also essays, team bios like yourself, Asia, episode archives, merchandise, and the one and only Reed Lackey. <laughs> I'm here. Hey, oh my buddy. Gosh. Hey, how are you? It's good to see you. Came in like a wrecking ball. Wow, uh, I did. Good to see you, buddy. <laughs> 
It's good to see you too, hey, Asia. Uh, Reed, Asia's here. Asia, it yeah. is so nice to see you again. As always, it is such a pleasure to have you. Oh my goodness, I exist. You exist. We all exist. <laughs> that was very existential. Do we know? I mean, yes, <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, <laughs> this is a question. I didn't even <laughs> need my notes for that one. <laughs> question of the ages. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, was totally extemporaneous. Um, so, real quick, a little business time. Oh, okay. um, if you have, if you haven't been, you know, watching Midnight Mass, it's Time to time to make it happen. You know, we're going to be talking about episode five today in the Patreon segment, the patron segment. Uh, join Patreon. Come join us. Five bucks a month. Huh, what? Come on. You got it. You so much. Um, so do that. But you're also hearing it here first. You didn't know we're going to announce it, but we've got another ladies night coming up. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. What? So I'm a so coda to 2021 more time uh, will be once more Vera, Asia, and Jess are getting back together. This time to battle aliens with the film A Quiet Place 2. So this week we're discussing Last Night in Soho. Next week, Valley of the Shadow. That's the name of it, right, Reed? Yes. Very nice. Yes. The documentary (laughs) that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Then Midnight Mass. And then A Quiet Place 2. Asia. Ladies Night. Uh, It was uh, so good the first time. I got all teary and verklempt listening to y'all. And I I still haven't watched the movie. (laughs) 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 Who's got time for that? Hmm. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Y'all have a very excellent uh, collection of uh, ladies in the fog group, which given the material of today's episode was probably not the right way to word that. But (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uh, y'all know what I mean. We do. We do. We do. No, we're it's it's funny. Like, yeah, it's something that I take profound delight in uh, for a number of, of myriad of different reasons. But the caliber of uh, intelligent and thoughtfulness that that each of you bring to the table is just uh, is really impressive. And honestly, I'm just excited to hear it because I can't wait. It's going to be cool. And I'm excited for a week off. You know, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Show you where our minds I are. I swerve. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so, hoes, let's talk about this movie. <laughs> Yeah, wow. I mean, wow. it's right there for the taking. It is it's right there for the and taking. You still decide. So I got a question yeah. for the two of you. A okay. fun, a fun. Yeah. So, um, we're talking today about Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, a fun little romp through <laughs> 1960s and present day Soho, uh, featuring Thomas and McKenzie, uh, Anya Taylor Joy, and a myriad of other folks. Lots of just FYI, intentional Bond references in this movie, oh, by mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, up till now, Edgar Wright has not really been prone to sequels. He had a loose The Cornetto trilogy, which is, sure. is only sort of thematically linked to each other, not narratively or character-wise, but with the same ensemble. Um, but like on Malignant, we had a grand old time just talking about some possibilities of, of the franchise of... Of Malignant. And I'm curious with two of us now, or three of us, two two folks uh, able to offer as well, in addition to myself. You like how good I am with numbers late at night? Um, <laughs> Indeed. Is is what might be a new uh, frequent segment of what's the sequel? And I posed to you guys today to get creative, because when I did Malignant, Reed did not know that was going to be asked. <laughs> Um, but it feels like a good icebreaker, you know, uh, last night in Soho, just about the, the halcyon days, at least as, uh, uh, Ellie Thomason's character remembers them, 
you know, what is the, what is, what is the sequel? What's, what's the last night in blank sequel or last night in Soho sequel as you've sort of thought about it? I'm I'm just curious. I'm curious. Where where are we going guys? We are the developers. We are studio execs (laughs) to the typewriter. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'm just manifesting here. Right. Right. Um, any, any offer? I'm going to let Asia pitch this first. So I, I had fun with this one, this sort of Good. last week in Soho installment. Um, so this really, it kind of feeds into, well, what does the end of the first movie mean? That very, very last shot mm-hmm. when it's, okay, it's not your mother in the mirror. It's Sandy still, mm-hmm. which is unsettling mm-hmm. and sort of kind of foreboding. So the question then becomes, she see, you know, so she seems to have set free the souls of those whom have haunted her all throughout the, this first installment. Uh-huh. Um, however, she was present in the room when one life, at least, was taken in that same room. And what if that soul, as would be demonstrated by the end of the movie, follows her? Mm. And so we kind of get this meta inversion of last night in Soho. However, it now becomes a possession story. No. In that, because Ellie in the first one gets to inhabit the former goings on of Sandy's life. And if Sandy has proceeded with Ellie throughout her life moving forward, as time goes on, does she have more ability to take over Ellie's? Mm consciousness Mm. to then start reliving what bits of her life she felt that she missed the first time around. Wow. And so in a different but similar way, Ellie now has to try to fight for her own consciousness along with the help of John, her friend, and, you know, not be overtaken by evil and all that. So is what you're (laughs) saying in our sequel here, is it a, it's a, combative dynamic that maybe becomes a sympathetic dynamic or like is she is 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 the sandy is ghost sandy a figure of antagonism to ellie or do they bury the proverbial hatchet here <laughs> i would say that it's probably i would say it starts more amicably simply mm. because they would have gotten used to each other at this point but then ellie not Ellie, uh, Sandy, being somewhat of the opportunist that she is inherently, starts to get tired of only being able to do what Ellie wants to do. Mm-hmm. And having lost so much of her prime, her youth to abuse and terrible things, I think that that relationship starts to become more and more toxic and Ellie starts to lose more and more of herself and it becomes uh, okay, okay now we have to fight back again whether that be either to reconcile or to completely exercise and put to rest once and for all could be a fun ride yeah with no, great I'm music down. okay okay that's that's a pitch Reed you got a pitch for us well I did I had um, a, 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 a somewhat silly perhaps bad joke single line and then i actually came okay. up with one that 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 like in, in the spirit of that is not really jokey so uh so i'll lead with that one um so okay. my sincere 
sequel idea. It takes a little bit of a different tack than than Asia did. And here it is. Uh, a young ingenue by the name of Eve dreams of one day being a model. She travels to London, as people do, to pursue her dream. And she has some hope for a big break when she's accepted in a competition where the prize winner will have the privilege to model the latest line of fashion by oh. the renowned Ellie Turner. But the competition isn't just fierce, it's murder. <laughs> and while her fellow... <laughs> <laughs> and while her fellow competitors start mysteriously dying one by one, she simultaneously is tormented by strange visions of the 1980s and an aspiring young dancer who might just hold the key to unraveling the present day mystery before Eve herself becomes the next victim. So that is mm. my that is I love it. That is Eve, my you know, so brave. Yes, I'm hooked. <laughs> so brave. So brave. So, um, so and then uh, <laughs> the the joking uh, one was I was just gonna. It, it's really not even a line. It's just uh, we could call it uh, last night at the Roxbury, and then and it's the uh, the guys mm. come and they're just <laughs> yes exactly, and they just try to make their and they don't even realize what they're getting into. They're like, oh my god! <laughs> all these all these guys and and it's comedy horror. What you know, is so. love? Yes, basically. Yes, that's that is the <laughs> that's, vibe. But that's what they're saying going. to Sandy. Don't hurt me, no more, no more. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so I, I'm kind of mishmashing a little bit here because because. You know, I, I was, you know, this I'm putting on my executive hat. Okay, guys, I'm picturing, <laughs> I'm picturing franchise here. Okay, big picture, big right. picture. You know, all you right. got your, you got your Sandy Ellie story, but like John Carpenter, I don't want it to be all about Sandy and Ellie. You know, and it suddenly turned into Michael Myers everywhere. No, we're going anthology. Okay, oh boy. So mm. you just do. Uh, uh, I gave it away a minute ago. I didn't mean to, but it's last night in. Fill in the blank, but it's previously oh. romanticized locales that some hapless character falls victim to. You know, mm, last um, night in Paris. I'm I'm jiving. There you I'm go. Jiving. Yes, last night, last in night in you know Bangkok, and and one mm. night in Bangkok is the theme song that somebody <laughs> sings. But it's like last night in Bangkok. That's an old eighties song. It's before your time. Um, no, but, ah! <laughs> I'm, wow. kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so you just keep going. You do like I don't know, three, four, five. You you can go for it. Just just yeah. some someone has romanticized a place, and yes. that place both meets and disappoints those expectations. Yeah. But then you just what we need. It's got to have legs. It's got to go way out into the future. So. Like, Eventually, it's uh, then, last night in Pacoima. You know, like we're just well, we're just getting no, there. We're, we're, we're getting there. So, like, you know, it, maybe it's things like last night in high school or last night in college. You know, it's like the, mm. the last this thing. This something goes sideways and tomfoolery mm -hmm. ensues, and like way, way down the line, this is this is this is when the series has jumped the shark and come back. Is now we're in fantasy territory, and it's like I don't know, last night in Middle Earth. And it's like <laughs> Frodo's last night before he leaves for the Grey Havens. You know, it's wow. like we are just wow. far, wow. far. This series ain't just got legs. It, it, it's not just got legs. It's got stilts. We're just like, <laughs> we are, yeah, we just, are going just, for it. Just running down the lane. Uh huh. Can't catch last night. Yeah, wow. that's it. Edgar Wright. Wow. Call wow. me. We'll make it happen. We'll I like make it that. happen. Fun. <laughs> All What's right. The sequel. I enjoyed that. That was fun. So Asia, I knew when you. We're coming on the show, or at least I had a sense that based on our, uh, some of my observations of things you post about that you were a fan of this movie. So I want to 
kind of give you the floor here of of your experience. This is, um, Reed, I think this is your first view, and this is my second viewing. It's I did first. watch it independently and then watch it for this. You know, what was the context in which you saw it? Um, response that first time. What has your relationship been like to it since then? So the first time I saw it, I was so, so eager to go see it. I love Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright is probably been one of the most inspirational directors writers for me personally like in any of my own creative endeavors um i had been i i'm very much like super duper uber amateur like screenwriter is just something i love to do for myself and I had just started toying with certain ideas for a script that I wasn't sure. It's like, I don't know if this idea that I have is going to work, if it's going to, um, I don't know if, if what I'm trying to do here is going to translate to the screen. And then Baby Driver came out. Mm. And when I watched Baby Driver, it was like that, that is everything I want to do <laughs> with storytelling, with aesthetics, with music, with, Mm-hmm. just oh it was so good and i love scott pilgrim versus the world and and i just really appreciate edgar wright so when this movie um got announced and when the trailer first came out it's like oh my gosh it's it's edgar wright it's apparently very vintage which is always something that appeals to me the music is sensational i have a very very long-standing affection for the song downtown ever since i was a very young child um and not you know it's it looks like a thriller horror thing so i was just j mark we're gonna go see this movie like you're (laughs) either i'm going alone you're coming with me whatever i'm going to see it now Mm -hmm. um so i just kind of sat there riveted from the very opening scene with the door and the newspaper dress and the backlit. I was like, I'm here. I, whatever this movie is going to give me, I want it. (laughs) I want all of it. So my first viewing was just ecstatic glee. Um, And that's not to say that there isn't anything at all that I would criticize about it because there are a few things that I I would not consider perfect about it. Um, But I, just leaned over to J Mark so many times in the theater, just like quietly, like whisper screaming, cinema! <laughs> it's just. <laughs> I mean, just in your defense, like, and, and I enjoy Edgar Wright in a general sense and, and would say love some of his stuff. What is undeniable about him, regardless of the effort, is the thoughtfulness, the intentionality, mm. the design. Uh, um, considerations. Mm. I mean, you know, watching this one a second time, it's just hard not to be taken with dead gum. They just went for broke on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, I, I definitely echo that. And had, had you, had you watched it since the theater? Um, no, actually, which is surprising because I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, but I feel like since then there was just such an avalanche of, film after film after film and things that were coming out that I had yeah. not circled back around to it until I rewatched it for 
for this. Mm. Um, and I liked it even better the second time. There's so this, this is most definitely a movie that benefits from repeat viewings because that intentionality that Nathan just talked about is that much more apparent in the dialogue, in the way that the music tells you what's going on mm. from the very beginning. If you're just aware of it. So. Yeah. I have a lot of affection for this movie and anyone who understands my aesthetic leanings, you know, I, Rosemary's Baby is like my favorite movie. This like <laughs> feels a lot like that. So it's okay. It's a waifish girl in a big city. There's cool clothes, awesome music. Okay. We're done. Just, <laughs> you may blanks. continue. Yes. Franchise, go. That's um, awesome. Reed, what are, what are some general, this was your first time. What yeah. are some general thoughts? So I'm predisposed to like Edgar Wright. I think. You know, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz specifically are films I adore. Love those oh movies. My gosh, Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. I um I responded with somewhat less enthusiasm, but still distinct enthusiasm to Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, uh, World's End, you know. Uh, so I'm predisposed. Edgar Wright has always made films that I at least, at a bare minimum, really enjoy. And Last Night in Soho is no different. Um there what's interesting about it is i knew it was horror but you know the lines of horror can sometimes stretch and blur and 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 many you know even on this show we often include things as horrific and and sort of classify for conversation that aren't traditional horror the first hour of this i was like maybe this is that <laughs> because the first hour of it i was like okay like not a, not a single startling, scary thing has happened, not even sort of the ominous nature of it. And I knew or I suspected it was probably coming to a degree. And then, yeah, the back half of the film totally rectified that. And I was like, okay, yes, horror, indeed. Um, <laughs> so in that way, and and I mean, I, this is maybe just hanging a lantern on my feelings about it, not necessarily even a criticism. In that way, it can, to a degree, feel like two different movies, unified by story, but mm. tone can feel a little bit like two different movies. Again, that is not me criticizing it, just kind of hanging a lantern on, okay, maybe it could have felt a bit more unified. Doesn't necessarily have to. I've seen plenty of movies that have very distinct tones with pivots somewhere in the narrative that I also adore. Um, if I had a, a a major sort of quibble, this is going to edge up to theme, so I'm only just going to sort of point to it right now. Maybe we'll come back to it. Maybe we don't. Um, I did feel first viewing, and I and I, I, I take your note there, Asia, that maybe a second viewing would reward or maybe solidify some of this. Um, the way in which what felt like unforgivable atrocity when you first learn the nature of Sandy's relationship with all these men and to call it relationship is an insult. Like the nature of her engagement, I'll call it with these, th this parade of men um, and how I'm just like, Oh man, these are hideous, malevolent human beings and just horrific. And then the way that the conclusion of the film nuances that I won't say it, mm full-scale reverses it, but it nuances that to where they become, at least to a degree, somewhat sympathetic in that they have been just systematically slaughtered. Um, and we can, for listeners who haven't seen the film, we can maybe unpack some of those details if we want, but I'm just going to point to it for the moment and just say that tension at the end is something that left me pondering about the film, not quite sure how I felt about it in total, mm. just in that sense of like, okay, well that, you know, I don't like to feel sympathetic for 
all those guys to any degree. <laughs> like I don't I don't want to feel any degree. And I get that the film very deliberately like from Ellie's character like hey, I know why you killed them. But the film definitely calls out more sympathy I think for Sandy than it does for any of those men, but it was just a if if you both are kind of picking up on the 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 nuance that it introduced to it sort of complicated my feelings about the trajectory that they were playing. However clever I might have thought the last minute reveal, the last minute pivot uh, was, and I did find it clever because I I never saw it coming. I don't know how I could have seen it coming, <laughs> but I never I never saw the last minute reveal coming. Um, but yeah, overall no, highly no, enjoyed it. Yeah, that's helpful. And and before we wade into much deeper waters you you alluded to the back half being a bit more horrific and it feels like an appropriate moment to identify in last night in soho by edgar Wright. not just things that are wrong but this just ain't right Sure as hell ain't right. All right, so that ain't right, indeed. Uh, because you know, you, to your point, Reed, this movie is a little bit of a slow burn on this aspect of it. But once it starts wading into those waters, it gets pretty, 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 pretty scary. Or oh pretty, heck yeah! You know, horror style. Mm-hmm. Um, Reed, I'm gonna start with you. What, what would, what would your, you know, what? I'm not gonna do that because I'm looking at a bunch and it didn't. I wasn't thinking about. We, we name our top. Asia's our guest. This right. is her movie that she I would picked. Have I want Asia to yes. go first. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I think yours will probably be a lot more satisfying to the an audience than mine. So, weirdly enough. I did not find this movie all that scary. Mm. That does not detract from my love for it at all. Um, I find it very um, creepy and ominous um, and certainly upsetting. <sighs> okay. Mm. Try to follow me here to understand this. My moment that I consistently on both viewings walked away from feeling the most uncomfortable or or the most like oh like that's not like that ain't right like that makes me that that disturbed me in some way more than any other moment was the first time you understand that sandy has been set up to be something that she did not intend to be and that mm-hmm. is during the burlesque scene when they're all ha- when she's sort of in this ensemble yeah. of, of yeah. gals who have yeah. to do this um it's set up to be a very uh uncomfortable moment mm-hmm. um and while many people would probably criticize it as like oh christian shouldn't watch this scene it is meant to make you uncomfortable mm-hmm. you know it's <laughs> and there's one very specific element that to me puts that into the not right territory. And this may be a very uniquely female perspective from my pair of eyes watching it. And it's that Ellie, ob- not Ellie, I keep wanting to say Ellie instead of Sandy, but Sandy obviously is not into what she has to be doing right there. Mm. But if you actually pay attention to the entire chorus, every single girl in that scene has the exact same expression, which is deadpan. Like wow. we're talking 
total deadpan, which then led me to believe this is part of the choreography. So we're in this scenario where we've got all these dudes up here clapping for this burlesque-esque moment, and it is written into the choreography to be entertaining these men that the women purposefully look disinterested. Mm. And that that is supposed to, I guess, heighten the appeal by drawing the attention away from their humanity and on to <laughs> all the other things wow. going on on stage. And there's something about how voyeuristic that scene is hmm. that has al- that always just made me so uncomfortable. Um, there's so much more scary, graphic, spooky things in this than that, but that consistently was my that ain't right. The fact yeah. that the choreography of that scene is that the women are meant to not be enthused by what they're doing. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Oh, very <laughs> much so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And would definitely affirm and agree. It, it's, I felt very, I was made to, uh, I felt very uncomfortable watching that scene. The, the concept mm-hmm. that these people have paid to, to, to sit and watch this. And I always worry perhaps unduly so whenever I express my discomfort and my distaste with that visual dynamic and with that uh, sort of scene in any film, I always worry perhaps overly so that I'm going to just, Oh, well, Reed's a prude, you know, like, or whatever. It's not quite that Mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a little bit more broad minded than that. But uh, there is something just about that sensibility. These people have paid money for the privilege to, transact voyeurism and that feels Mm -hmm. really slimy to me that feels like very like oh no that's what and and so then when you call out like there's calculation to the ladies participating on the stage absolutely like that yeah it's all the more uncomfortable and heightened and that ain't right and absolutely ain't right um i'm gonna cite one that's more traditional yep um a few places as a concept and in the real hold more comfort to me than libraries. And so <laughs> whenever I you're say movie, your bed, that's, that's sort of mine. I was like, Oh yeah, that too. Got no, up here. I just love <laughs> being in a library and surrounded by, I just love it. I romanticize it. And so when you put your characters in a library and you populate that library with a host of horrendous, scary looking spirits, um, particularly culminating up to where she almost stabs that girl mm. in the face. Just that whole Jocasta. scene. Oh my god. I mean, goodness. did she have to not though? I know. That's the other thing. It's just like, I kind of want this. Like, there's plenty that of definitely other things. changes the sequel though. <laughs> now Ellie's on the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's uh, where in the world uh, is Carmen San Diego instead of like <laughs> last night in Soho. But um, no, that's my that ain't right. It's just that whole library scene with those ghosts just wreaking havoc, uh, trying to get her attention and culminating in her almost stabbing to Costa in the face. But yes, mm-hmm, yeah, mm, that ain't right. That ain't right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll throw out my that ain't right, and then I want to piggyback a little bit. But um, I mean. The only real honest jump scare for me is once I can't remember exactly sequentially, but you know, the, the presence of this host of what I called ghost Johns, uh, starts (laughs) to become more ever present and oppressive towards Ellie. And at one point she's to our knowledge awake 
and she's in the bathroom looking in the mirror and mm-hmm. I think trying to center herself or kind of come come to her senses. And we we know visually she's in the reel, she's awake, she's alert, her actual bedroom is to her left in the frame. And she turns and there's an audio cue to go along with it. But all of a sudden, all those ghost Johns mm-hmm. are like right there. And it it's mm-hmm. it's a legitimate kind of jump moment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A legitimate kind of jump moment there. Let's go out of that ain't right. Because I've got unless. Yes, Asia, you. Do you mind if I do since Please. no, I, neither of you took this and I thought yeah, you might. And so this way I can round out mine with something that would make more sense to this uh, segment. There's a really great moment, and I also just love how it worked with the music, and it's so startling, is when Ellie is actually working on this pink chiffon dress that she's been trying to construct throughout the course mm-hmm. of the movie, mm-hmm. and she's working with mm-hmm. a, a model student, and she's working along the very the hem of it, and then very quickly in sequence with the music, she pops up to look at the top of it, and the model that she's been working with now stands before her as Sandy, bloodied and murdered from her yeah. most recent vision and it's a really arresting moment particularly with how it's overlaid with always something there to remind me and it's just gosh <laughs> not right at all in the best way absolutely absolutely take, take us away andrew that sure as hell ain't right so mm. i i want us to be mindful as the person who engineered a bunch of bits along the way already of, of just not having a five hour conversation here. Um, (laughs) because I think there's a lot to talk about and, and I am going to risk dominating it with throwing out two, two heavy hits here real quick, but it's in my brain now that some of that ain't right conversation happened. So one, I don't want to camp here for a second, but I do want to put it in y'all's brains to possibly come back to. And so, yes, two things being thrown out here. One, I'm just going to acknowledge and point to. So my quibble with the structure of the film is I feel after two viewings and it's, I, I, I went into the second one anticipating I'm going to pay more attention. Will this stay with me? This thing I came out of the first viewing a little stuck on and it, it really did. I think you could cut the mother component out of this movie completely and, and might, hmm. it, it might actually benefit the film. Um, I, I think, I think for me, the film attempts to nod to a trope that I thought we were kind of past. And I'm not, that sounded real haughty the way I just said that, but of the mental illness component, like is Ellie, has she inherited a mental illness thing Mm. that is now impacting her one the first time i saw it i was like really is that what we're doing here uh and then the lines get really blurred between is is this a psychosis that she's encountering or is this actual ghosts and i feel i i personally still feel pretty unresolved not as in is it psychosis is it real there are pointers by the end of the film that indicate at least that you know, at least uh, adult Sandy can sort of see these things. Anyway, the lines get really blurred between exactly what's going on there. But the whole mother suffered mental illness. Now does Ellie have it? It honestly really kind of troubled me. And I felt like it's pretty unnecessary once the whole movie is in view. So we can come back to that as you want. But what I wanted to put that as at least a bookmark. But Asia, what you threw out there, 
about the burlesque scene just really on the second viewing spoke a lot more to me. First viewing is more just experiencing, okay, what is, what is this? And, oh, it's, it's really lovely to look at and really well-designed, blah, blah, blah. Um, but something that really sang out to me this time, one is this component of how we romanticize a thing that really doesn't take in full honest view what the thing is or was, um, and, and what that kind of can produce in the ways we stifle that or shut down what we don't want to know. Um, Hello, America and your history. Um, but also what really, and I'm, and I try to, as best I can watch these things with objective eyes, knowing that read, as we talked about in midnight mass or both of you 10 minutes ago, um, our bias is always going to be a bit present, but something that really kind of yelled at me this time is this concept of what women are given as aspirational. Mm. is really just commodified creation and how kind of like how just really effing sad that is to me mm. uh and you feel it when 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 ellie is present in that burlesque vision is and it to me it starts when she watches sandy sing downtown uh because this this dynamic that is happening is Ellie who romanticizes this era, romanticizes this woman that she's developed a, a fascination with, a vision of, and so on and so forth, whatever she perceives that to actually be. She's watching her and aspiring. While at the same time, you've got lecherous doofuses over here mm -hmm. who are judging things we aren't quite understanding of what they're judging yet, right? Because even we don't know at that point what they're priming her for yeah um and I, I don't know i just got really kind of disheartened disappointed sad just all all the things about you know how th this this thin line between oh gosh all these things that just pop up to us at <laughs> moments in time <laughs> listening to I, I even referenced it last week read but uh uh sway podcast had emily rot Ratajkowski, oh, occasional, yeah. occasional actor, mm -hmm. uh, was at least in Gone Girl and various other things. Yeah. And Gone Girl's mostly was, what I know her from. She was on this interview and of a podcast I, I listened to and they, the interviewer who is, is a woman is, is, um, uh, very outspoken lesbian is very conscious of gender dynamics and culture. And it's really fascinating because the title of the episode is Emily uh, uh, profits off the male gaze and is okay with that. And this whole conversation is about, Hey, this thing is sort of bad. And the, the, the journalist keeps pressing her on it. And ultimately this sort of tension does not get resolved of, but you're kind of okay with it because it earns you a lot of accolade and income and so on and so forth. And just this really fascinating, but sad kind of thing. Cause she challenges her. just like girls are emulating your, your quote unquote, an influencer, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm pasting, I'm throwing a lot out here, but pasting onto this dynamic, this idea that what is often given to women. And this makes me sad. What, off, what is often given to women as aspirational is still just curated and, and, mm -hmm possibly slash probably not even 
of agency of the one they aspire to. So that's how's that for shallow? <laughs> I'm going to let uh, Asia respond if she has some immediates. I think I don't. That's a lot. Sure. And <laughs> I think the first thing that it makes me think of is the scene where Lindsay, who we who we come to know, his name is Lindsay. Mm-hmm. The cop. Yep. It, yep. Yeah, the cop mm-hmm. is, first off, the only person of a similar age to Sandy, though still probably quite a bit older than her, mm-hmm. um, has come to ask her questions just to see. I don't know if he's trying to talk her out of it, if he's trying to catch her. Come on, 60s Lindsay? He's a 60s Lindsay, yeah, okay. young 60s yeah. Lindsay. Good looking fellow, um, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and. He says to her at some point, you're better than this. And her response is, I don't think I am. And I have a lot of tension when I look at that moment because I wonder if she says, I don't think I am, because that is genuinely what she has begun to believe about herself, or if because she has already started to dispose of the people that have hurt her in such a way to where it doesn't matter whether or not she is. Mm-hmm. She's she's locked in. You know, if she were to get help from somebody like Lindsay by the police, by anybody who could actually assist her, she's in too uh, much 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 too be too deep at that point. Um but the male gaze is a very mysterious thing even i would say to women Hmm. in that it is something that we have never ever 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 lived a second without and how do i word this it would feel to somebody like sandy that the male gaze being jack's attention is what saved her from the initial distasteful first encounters in that nightclub that she was trying to get employment at. Right. So the male quote unquote gaze has supposedly given her something that was not monetary, that was not selfish, that was not um, opportunistic. He gave her something that he knew that she needed as a person, which was protection, attention, affection, right? Um, And then ingratiated himself with her just enough to where getting away couldn't possibly be easy. Hmm. I don't know. That's just, those were my initial thoughts. Let me, let me interrupt there real quick, Reed. I'm sorry. The, the, Hmm. what's interesting to me, because I tried to do some reading today about the movie, not necessarily about this topic of the movie, but, um, one, and I will text y'all this and I will try to remember to post it to the feed, but there's this incredible video on YouTube. That's a cut from a, a behind the scenes feature out on the DVD of a wide shot of the dance, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in the club with Jack and Sandy. And at the same time, occasionally Ellie. And it's really, I, I love this kind of stuff. It's that kind of production process stuff. It's just a mm-hmm. wide shot on set. And you watch the choreography as <laughs> as Thomas and Mackenzie steps in and on each other. Joy gets down below mm, and they're just trading places. Yeah, it's really, yeah. cool, really cool. Yeah, um, yeah. But what what I wanted to throw in there to your point and and 
about Jack specifically and, and the potential honorability or magnanimity of his rescuing her from that moment. Something I found that was interesting was, and this may have even been in the, um, the IMDb stuff is the, the, the lecherous dude who yells whore or whatever it is. He yells Mm -hmm. at her slut. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because what this note was, was saying was our, our jarring reception of him doing that ignores the fact that while still, a lecherous thing to yell at someone he knows who jack is mm-hmm. jack's a pimp and pimp and and he isn't rescuing her from that per se he's he's rescuing her from the moment but there's an active dynamic of him recruiting her effectively. so so yeah, i'm gonna go <laughs> i had a completely indifferent interpretation of that moment so um it is possible that i am incorrect about the part that made me think this but there is a moment when Sandy is in the throes of, you remember the scene where we just see almost in montage of her dancing in different outfits and it pivots back and forth. Mm-hmm. She's dancing mm-hmm. in an outfit mm-hmm. and she's sitting in a booth with a guy. Then she's dancing with an outfit mm-hmm. and she's sitting in a booth with a guy. The very first time, I believe it's the very first time that that is shown to us, it, oh no, no, it's not in that. It's <laughs> in the moment that Asia cited as her, that ain't right. It's after the burlesque moment when Ellie, sitting in the crowd, sees the uh, burlesque show happening. She's obviously uncomfortable, gets up, runs out. The first thing Ellie sees is at the bar, Jack is sharing a drink with the guy who called her those horrible Mm -hmm. names. And what I thought Mm -hmm. is that it was all a setup, that Jack never actually rescued her at all. That it was a frame to make her feel rescued so that she would trust Jack and that Jack could then yeah. in- introduce her. That's that's how I took that. So I didn't take that ever Jack had any good to present to Sandy's world at all. And that where Sandy is, she, again, uh, I forget which of you said it or maybe you both said it, that now she's just in. Now she's just, mm. you know, now she's just on that that train and i do i mean i do feel like there's two questions that i heard when you asked this there is the question of curated creation versus agency and 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 that kind of thing and i think i think that's a slightly different question than commodification because i do think like the there is an entire movement i do not necessarily understand it and i certainly have not educated myself enough about it but i hear in some of the you know just interviews around horror movie circles and very specifically i've heard it on a couple of uh interviews about horror movies uh from uh women filmmakers and stuff like that where there is a movement which like emily uh i always screw up her last name rachinkowski i'm probably saying it wrong which i'm, I'm sorry for but the th- there is a movement where they say like yes uh this is a this is an expression of my agency that i can leverage these things that i can leverage sure. the male gaze and that there is and that to some what i have heard it expressed obviously i have no relational points to it but what i have heard it expressed is this is a way to seize back power from those who would seize it from me 
is that now I can, you know, now sure. I am in control of the situation. And again, there's so many complicated feelings and I am by no means the right person by experience or construct to talk about it in that way. But I think that that is different perhaps than what is happening to Sandy because I think Sandy is full board deceived. Like I think she, you know, wants to engage in she wants to be a singer and she wants to be a performer and she wants people to hear her voice. And and, and that's kind of what I get from her in the early stages of it. And then that is just not at all what she gets sucked into and how I interpreted her calculation of that is that she, to the point you mentioned, Asia, she doesn't think she deserves any better. She's like, I, I don't deserve any better than this. But then when she has that encounter with Jack with the knife the script flips and she has seized back her power at that point. And now she's like, Oh, I, I do have power. I, I can control this. And it, I would admit she draws an incorrect conclusion for how to use that power. But mm-hmm. that then begins the cycle of this is how I am going to take in the language I used earlier. This is how I'm going to seize back power from those who would seize it from me. And um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, I really like your, kind of headcanon there asia of when Lindsay, young Lindsay, um of the just just ravishing blue eyes um <laughs> is, is is asking her questions and she kind of deflects i think it's fun to to ponder how deep into her mission has she gotten and i think i think that is one thing structurally i wrestle with with the film a little bit is is, is when information comes it's kind of in big doses that I'm like, I don't wait. I'm fine with recontextualizing. Mm -hmm. I just don't totally know what this now does to what I was supposed to understand. And I, there are moments like that because, because like you say, and I was like, no, that, that actually could kind of work and be pretty cool. We know at that point she's been in it for a minute and it's, it stands to reason she's started this, you know, kind of vengeance spree. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just have no idea. Uh, but I do, I do think that's a cool, mm-hmm. cool consideration there. Well, and I, th- and I do oh, think you go ahead. Oh, go no, ahead. no, no, you, Asia, you, I do think that one thing, if I were to point out in my own kind of critique of it is that we don't entirely understand like what you said, Nathan, it does give us information in bulk. And so we, we recognize that the reason that she was so, you know, into, you know, the young doctor who, uh, because who wouldn't be right is the way he presented himself to her was as extremely benevolent and magnanimous sure. and all those things, even though I definitely believe re- I could see varying levels as to how that very first encounter, how scripted that was. Either way, he's a liar and he was lying to her from the beginning. But we're drawn into the beginning of their relationship why she's so into him, why she's so invested in him. But then the script flips very quickly. Mm -hmm. And what I, as a female, kind of had a hard time understanding. And granted, I didn't, I don't need them to spoon feed me all of this. But it was something that I, I don't think they needed to park here for a long time, but I don't quite understand exactly what it was that kept her in it in so much as coercion was involved Mm. because she's very obviously pretty much done with Jack by the time he asks her to leave with somebody else for the first time. But we don't necessarily see any 
real tangential threats of violence. We don't ever, as far as I remember, ever see her taking drugs to imply that she's become an addict in any way. I just would have liked to understand a little bit more of what was the initial grab that, because she's so feisty, you know, mm -hmm. she's such a fighter and she's so full of life. I had a hard time believing that there wouldn't have been something that forced her to stay before she became so hopeless that the only option was to start killing everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man. Yeah. And I, th I, I think one thing that, that I think those are really prescient points. I think that the film doesn't give us a lot in terms of connecting those dots. I think it's all a build. Well, I shouldn't say it's all. I think it's primarily a build to that big reveal. That's like, oh, no, mm. she wasn't the one killed. It's not her ghost that you're trying to sort of put at peace. It's the spirits of all of these these other people. And I think one thing that I did connect with to a degree that I would say like, hey, I I really loved this part of the movie is I feel like the movie is it does have on its mind the dismantling of our romanticized nostalgia, the way that mm -hmm. we can look back mm -hmm. at something and say like, oh my God, the good old days. And and something I have quibbles with, you know, I have like kind of little nitpicky quibbles about every sort of narrative theme and, and thematic theme that the, the film has, with the exception of that. That I feel like, oh no, this is great. I'm on this wavelength of how you romanticize the 80s, you romanticize the 70s, you romanticize the 60s. Look at everything that was taking place in the part. Like, I'm a bit reluctant to bring this up, so I'm going to bring it up in the midst of my just, own ignorance. You're and, in friends here. Just, be direct. Know, you got it. No, but I'm hyper-conscious of this kind of thing. What I have noticed is... I'm very nostalgic. Now, uh, Asia wasn't alive during the 80s, but she's probably picked up on in like <laughs> film and culture and media. <laughs> a lot of people are nostalgic. My, my point is a lot of people are nostalgic for the 80s. We are very ageist on the show tonight, Asia. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apparently so. Well, I'm very old. So, um, but Making me feel fresh as a daisy. <laughs> that's funny. But a lot of people are nostalgic for the 80s. One of the things that I have become conscientious of in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic that we are in it became a little bit of dot connecting um and i don't i could be challenged on this and i would yield in a heartbeat but one place where i do not find a tremendous amount of nostalgia for the 80s is among the lgbtq community that was alive during the 80s when the aids epidemic was ravishing so many of their community not an exclusivity they weren't the only ones suffering from it, but it, I think it would be fair to say it was devastating that community. And I and it did sort of ping for me. And again, I, I expressed this sensitively. I could be challenged on it and I would yield. Um, but I expressed this sensitively to say, like, there are maybe a whole swath of people who would praise or love, like, oh my gosh, the, you know, this era, that era. And I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that we can't love the things we love for the reasons we love them. But I do think there's some maturity in recognizing maybe that was not the rip-roaring good time for everybody that was engaged in that moment. And I think this film has that on its mind in a substantive way. And it's like, okay, yeah, all of this nightclub scene and you want to get in on this scene. And, and, and in that way, I can kind of forgive and even applaud 
the what I cited earlier as feeling like two different movies. It's like you get into it and you feel like this is going to be right. great. This is wonderful. And then you realize like, oh my God, this is not wonderful. There's there's bodies here, literally, and mm-hmm. figuratively. There's bodies here that there's some reckoning that is owed. And Nathan, you mentioned and sort of skipped over quickly the you know the reality of like america coming to terms with our own history and i think part of that is is all tied up in this of the ways that we can romanticize our nostalgia or we can through a lens see a period of time and say wasn't that glorious completely and perhaps willfully ignoring and burying all of the things the tragedies the travesties that commodified people that um you know literally drove people to atrocities themselves in both directions um and and we lose a lot of that and i think we we do so to our peril when we when we get that way so that's something again that i would cite probably as my final note that's something that i would cite as like really i zoned in on in this film and for all of my other quibbles i did love that about this film that consideration so um i don't know if so so this is the moment at which like we can we can pivot to the fog meter or if there's anything that either of you had that you're like hey nope i came into last night in soho and i really wanted to say this and i need to see this then then i'll give you a couple of minutes to do that and then or we can go to fog meter either either or i am a little curious from the two of you the like Am I just seeing something that I'm, or am I getting hung up on something that is not there uh, in the, see, I don't even totally know how to articulate it, except that, you know, the, the, well, I'll, I'll frame it the way I sort of posed it earlier. Do y'all see what I'm saying when I think you could just slice out the whole mom aspect, like Ellie's. Hmm history there really doesn't matter to the story being told do you mean that specifically just in terms of her mom or i think the mental illness aspect that they use her mom to usher in sure yeah but (laughs) all of it i mean that's not me trying to be overly dismissive there i'm simply saying i can't tell the value of because I was even trying to interrogate this last night when I was watching it and it was and to me it's it's a functional choice it's not a character choice and and I wish you know it's like okay well how are we going to explain how she begins seeing these things is that what we're supposed to be assuming is happening is she's having some sort of mental break I don't know I don't know and and again um, well maybe it's just me finding something that isn't totally there but go ahead so I was I'm very interested in the mental health aspect of this story. And I, I certainly have never struggled with anything on par with what they're trying to imply that Ellie does, which would be something akin to like schizophrenia and things like that. Um, but as somebody who has a, like a mental illness diagnosis, I loved the way they handled it Mm. in this film because a, whether or not they needed the mom element specifically to get us all on board with it or to be the backdrop for it, Ellie, I believe, needed a reason to question herself. Hmm. You know, I think that insecurity that she feels 
is largely because she is uncertain of what she can be sure of, whereas if she had been in perfect stellar mental health up until that point, there would almost be no question of, well, A, what is it that I'm experiencing right now? So there would, the tension there would be much more, I feel like, kind of cut and dry. And then the question of, well, how is she going to cope with this? Mm -hmm. Which, again, I was very interested in. I guess also having personally, I, I remember very clearly the first time I ever watched the movie, it was a love, it was a wonderful experience, but I was also, I almost left the movie theater. Um, mm. because I was in the middle of having some really, really terrible physical symptoms, um, that I was dealing with at the time that this movie came out. And I almost had to leave the theater. Wow. And one of the things that was happening at the time were people who were professionals who wanted to help me and who, who were interested in assisting me telling me, well, there's really nothing wrong with you. So, but we know that you have a mental illness. Wow. So here's some Lexapro. Like we don't know, we cannot identify what is wrong with you physically, even though you are having X, Y, and Z symptoms, but we do know that you have this diagnosis. So let's just focus on that instead of addressing these new symptoms that have never been a part of your mental health history in the past and having characters in ellie's life who all mean well her grandmother wants nothing but good things for her everybody is consistently checking in like it you know (laughs) london can be a lot right however even the best of intentions are not getting at the root of the problem which is, no, what is happening to me is real. What mm-hmm. is happening to me is not just in my head. And as somebody who does walk around with a diagnosis that not everybody knows about and that medical professionals do know about, it's a very real experience in my own life of having people who really do care about me constantly having to or finding themselves questioning what part of what Asia just told me do I trust? What part of what Asia just told me do I take seriously? Mm. What part of what Asia just told me? You know, it's and it's again, I don't want to compare my own personal life to Ellie's too much just because again, Ellie has a wildly different diagnosis than I do or, you know, supposed diagnosis. It's all very implied. Yeah, right, 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 right. Um, but I loved it because I've had those conversations with people before, you know, to to a different extent. But I know what it's like to be trying to get somebody to believe you that something is wrong, something physical and real is wrong. Yeah. And people just want to throw a medication at you or mm. you need to reduce your stress or, or things like that. Um, again, I agree with Nason that I think the mom might have been kind of a tag on to that that wasn't necessary. I think Ellie's own mental health journey could have sufficed in and of itself, but I digress. You've got something to say. Well, no, and you, you've, you've basically addressed it in a satisfactory way in the sense that each time I've watched it, I just couldn't quite 
I couldn't quite figure out what the movie was trying to tell me about mm. both Ellie and her experience, not her experience, mental illness, but her experience with this whole thing she's in, because it is such a, it's a fantastic story from a, just like, Hey, listen, this, this girl goes to London. <laughs> it's mm. the pitch meeting, right? Yeah. She goes to London. She's always aspired to this and she's romanticized it. And wow, she starts having visions of this thing. I think what my concern with it was that you've kind of ironed out for me is I, it felt like the movie wasn't taking it seriously for mm. you. And, and that's why I was like, what? I can't quite tell what the movie is trying to do or tell me about this. But again, it, it, it's sort of potentially just my confusion there um, that I say with all sincerity, you've, you've helped me sort of see that. And, and it always matters like, okay, and that's why I presented it the way I did while I f- spoke strongly about the mom aspect. It was more just help me understand what am I supposed to take away here. Right. Um, and I'll just, I'll just add on, like I loved, uh, I loved Asia's take take on, uh, and it made me think of conclusion bias and how easy it is for us to, once a certain thing is resolved in our mind, we will ignore and dismiss any inputs that uh, might contradict that conclusion because we're on the train of saying like, Hey, this is what we've determined. And, uh, and so because of that, we're not going to receive new or differing inputs as anything other than cycling around that same exact thing, because we've concluded and resolved the matter. And that's what that is. And so anything else is just rolled up into that when we should be more, um, critically thinking about those differing inputs and what those all mean, but we're not very good at that. We're in anything. We're not very good at that. Um, um, one tiny last technical note. Yeah. I thought this was kind of interesting. The dualism, the, the sort of parallel aspects of Ellie's story and Sadie's, uh, Sandy's story. Um, I don't know. It's been mentioned, but Sandy's fake bow is Jack. Another name for Jack is what? Mm. John. 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 I love John. Oh, clever. I yeah, lo- he's great. Can we also just take a minute to acknowledge it is a freaking miracle by all the laws of not just films, but horror films that that man makes it out of this movie alive. Yes, sure. Like, Indeed. <laughs> every single... So, you know, so kind of taking these, these all tropes. So he's up in her room, which he's not supposed to be in in the first place. This is a urban film involving ghosts, mental illness, you know, again, it's deeply urban. There's a very cantankerous lady at the bottom of the stairs who we, we find out is much more cantankerous than we ever would have suspected. Um, and she's having these, you know, images, you know, sort of corrupted by whatever her fake friends gave her in that drink. And I'm just like, oh, well, there is a young black man on top of her mm-hmm. and she is crying help. And right. I thought the absolute worst was going to happen for this poor guy. Sure. I, and so the fact that he made, <laughs> he made it out, not certainly not unscathed, but the fact that he made it out in one piece is just like, wow. Happy ending. <laughs> yeah. For him. Like, yeah. He, <laughs> Good for you. That's right. No, that's absolutely You great. did it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go you. Um, no, I, odds. Uh, so, um, obviously a lot to think about in the film uh it's it i think it has a lot of interesting things on its mind was there anything else before we pivot to fog meter no you good 
We good? Take okay. us away, Reed. Mm-hmm. All right. We're so good. the fog meters are now, I guess, patented. Um, metric of fear and sure of fear and god uh, a film scares and uh, our term for its substance i'm gonna yield to asia first off on the fear measure one to ten what say you about last night in soho directed by edgar wright on the fear i'm gonna go ahead and say it's it's about a five for me um i can cognitively acknowledge wow these are really well-crafted gory creepy sequences i did not find myself personally scared scared or super offset by them if anything it was more just like wow that's gorgeously gory (laughs) i like it it. i'm not scared but i like it (laughs) indeed indeed show me some more you know i think five for me feels right when it uh pivots to horror i think i I think it's legit and it's it's there but uh not pervasively throughout so uh so yeah i think i think i uh, i'm gonna join that five what about for you nathan Surprising even myself, I think I'm going to go a little above y'all here and at minimum, I suppose, and we'll stay at a six. I just think even in ways that I don't even know that I fully appreciate, it's very audacious. And I mean, that friggin' taxi scene so mm-hmm. soon in the movie, mm-hmm. I was like, damn, this is what? Mm-hmm. What are we doing here? And just the, the, the through line of the, gender dynamics are very discomforting and for even you know just for me uh and add to that this gorgeously gory uh design of these ghost johns i I don't know yeah i I think i think it's effective uh when layered in with sort of those thematic aspects of it too so a six that makes sense what would you say for the god meter nathan um I'll go with a seven. I think, I think attacking the idea or, or, or putting in conversation, the notion of how the things we romanticize, ignore those things. Faults is a powerful thing and, and a worthwhile discussion to have. I think I personally find uh, clearly, I'm still a little confused by some of the, the nuances beyond that um, mm-hmm. thematically, but, but I think that's a really impressive thing to try to put in dialogue so yeah i'll I'll go with a seven for basically all the reasons that you mentioned not quite seven for me but a six uh for me i did i did zone in on that aspect and we'll be thinking about that aspect in a myriad of ways uh long after and when i think about this film that'll be one of the things that i uh cite and praise about it is that exploration so six for me asia bring us home I'm still grappling over the fact that I was stupid enough to give Rosemary's Baby only a six. Uh, <laughs> and so, like, I didn't understand. I, no, I don't everything's know. I was nerve- yes. It was my first time. I was nervous. I should have given it like a ten. Like there was not. There was no reason I should What's have. So Anyhow, is I remember when you gave it, thinking. I know wow. you're like what? <laughs> <laughs> like, are you having a seizure? <laughs> are you fine? Six, six. <laughs> like, what? Somebody help her! Oh my god, that's funny. So just please, as I move forward, everybody know that I take it back. Um, <laughs> so I would say on this, I'm probably going to go with something like a seven two, mm-hmm. um, because it, it really got me thinking about this. Que- I'm not actually asking this question because that would be a whole nother conversation in and of itself, but rhetorically, it really got me thinking about the question of what would it take me 
to not see somebody monstrous as a monster anymore, mm. which is what this movie mm-hmm. forces you to grapple with when you realize what has happened to all of these Johns. Right, right. And the fact that they have been suffering. Like, everybody is a villain and everybody is a victim to somebody. And I, I, I found that to be a really worthwhile thought experiment sure um that i'm happy I, so I, i'd say go with a seven awesome well that means that we give last night in soho uh directed by edgar wright a six out of ten on the fog meter perhaps the more prescient question and i'm gonna let asia answer last nathan would you recommend last night in soho <laughs> i just got totally confused by the way you constructed that question i know <laughs> let her go last i was like um, so, you're gonna let asia go oh me it's right. uh, my turn <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know what's really cute is my five year old when she's faking sleep, she goes, Hashu, Hashu, Hashu. Like she just wow. occasionally just be like, you know, faking it. That's pretty um, adorable. It is, it is. Um, what was the question? <laughs> do I wow. recommend Do you recommend it? Yeah, do you recommend absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's, 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 I mean, even with all of my sort of uncertainty about some of the finer points of it, it's pretty awesome to look at. And, and even just yes. last night rewatching, I was like, man, Anything I might fault Edgar Wright on, what I will never fault him on, is thoughtful design. I mean, he just... Yeah, certainly. I mean, a crew of designers, I'm sure, but uh, uh, there's just such a, a level of skill on display the whole mm-hmm. the whole proceeding. So, yeah, absolutely, I recommend it. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I would definitely recommend it. Uh, enthusiasm would vary depending upon what I knew about the viewer's sensibilities, but yes, I, I definitely recommend Last Night in Soho. And Asia, what about you? Well, if Asia can recommend something as, uh, you know, d- divisive as Rosemary's Baby to every person that walks past her, yes, I definitely <laughs> recommend Last Night in Soho. Oh, that's um, hysterical. Well, I think I actually think this is a great movie for somebody who's like, mm, maybe I want to dip my toes in horror, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm like, hmm, I really let like me slide this one over person. to you. Mm, don't tell me. What's the horror? Horror that's not horror. You know what wow. I mean? Well, I don't want to watch. I'm like suddenly becoming Dr. Frankenfurter today. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, three recommendations and a, I, I think it's a really, really interesting film and I mean, we haven't mentioned it yet on the show but that's why Edgar Wright got uh, a nomination for uh, on, for a Foggy Award for Best Director yeah. for Last Night in Soho. That's absolutely uh, uh, merited. Um, so that puts this episode uh, in our catalog. And uh, thank you very, very much, Asia, for joining us for this. Nathan, thank you as always. Um, Nathan, I feel a bit shy about it. Do you want to tell the listeners where we're going next week? Because I just I, I, I don't. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next week to sort of finish off 2021 <laughs> more times film entries. We are going to the documentary written, co-written, co-written, written, co-written, co-written. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) By Dr. Riedenstein himself, that a valley of the shadow. Now, Reed, tell Mm -hmm. us, sir, where can we find Valley of the Shadow to view on the interwebs? So at the moment, there's two primary places. You could search for it on Vimeo. And their platform, and you could rent it through that. Um, you could also sign up for the streaming service called Rediscover Television. Um, it is a faith-based streaming service that has Valley of the Shadow as part of its subscription catalog. So uh, those are your two, and at the moment, 
only two ways to see the film. Um, so you could rent it on Vimeo. You could uh, check out Rediscover Television, uh, both of which I would humbly encourage you to do. And uh, and then, yes, we will it's talk about it exciting times. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> well, I uh, yes, thank you very, very much for that. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Next week, not only uh, Valley of the Shadow, uh, thank you again for seeking it out if you do, but also patrons uh, catch up with Midnight Mass Episode 6, because we'll be talking about that on the patron segment. Thank you again, both of you, and thank you, listeners, as always. We will see you next week. See you, guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.